from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the Center for European Reform podcast. I'm Rosie Georgie, the CER's media coordinator and host of this Ask the CER podcast, where our researchers answer your questions on EU policy and international affairs. Naturally, this episode will look at the war in Ukraine following Russia's invasion of it one month ago. We'll examine the impact of the crisis on the EU's climate ambitions, UK-EU relations, Hungary's view of the crisis and Budapest's relationship with Brussels in this context. Here with me today are Senior Research Fellow Elisabetta Cornago, CER Foreign Policy Director Ian Bond, and Head of our Brussels office, Camina Mortera-Martinez. Thanks for joining me. Let's start with the energy angle. The European gas crisis and price hikes last year happened before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but the war has made it painfully clear that Europe can't go on importing roughly 40% of its natural gas supplies and over a quarter of its crude oil from Russia. But unlike the US, the EU hasn't yet sanctioned the Russian energy sector, and there are no prizes for guessing why. With this in mind, Elisabetta, let me put the first question to you. Klaas from Stockholm asked, what is the EU planning to do to achieve energy independence from Russia? Yes, uh, excellent question. Thank you. Um, indeed, uh, the EU hasn't sanctioned the Russian energy sector uh, or Banned Russian energy imports, as some member states like uh, Poland and the Baltics are vigorously calling for, uh, with the aim of cutting the revenues of fossil fuel exports uh, for, for the Kremlin. But um, on March the 8th, the Commission presented uh, the so called Repower EU plan, and, and, and the plan basically aims to reduce gas imports from Russia uh, by two thirds this year. Uh, and phase out all Russian energy imports, so including gas, oil, and coal, by 2027. Now, you know, if we focus on gas, um, cutting down gas imports from Russia by, by two-thirds in 2022 means finding both immediate and long-lived alternatives to, to Russian gas, uh, and finding solutions both by increasing supply of gas from elsewhere and reducing demand of gas in Europe. So um, on the supply side, what the EU can do immediately is uh, basically continue doing what it has done since the autumn when gas prices started spiking um, due to the flows of Russian gas via pipeline dwindling. Uh, and that is continue to find alternative suppliers. Uh, that's mainly um, suppliers of liquefied natural gas, uh, which for Europe are, again, aside from Russia, the US, Qatar, Nigeria and uh, Algeria. For instance, of March 25th, uh, Commission President uh, Ursula von der Leyen and US President Joe Biden announced an agreement by which the US would provide an additional 15 billion cubic meters of LNG in 2022, with more uh, going forward. So we can see that the US is going to be a more and more important gas uh, supplier to the EU. Now, Aside from liquefied natural gas, um, an option that's being used uh, is to replace gas with coal and oil as sources of electricity generation. And these are the immediate uh, supply side solution. But in the medium term, 
European member states need to accelerate really the installation of renewable energy plants, uh, wind turbines, solar panels. Um, and a way to do this is by simplifying the bureaucracy uh, around this, which is a big bottleneck. Uh, the EU also plans to increase use of biogas and of green hydrogen. This is all on the supply side, right? So on the demand side, um, the EU has not been as vocal, I think, in pushing for solutions. Um, yes, uh, the Repower EU plan does mention energy efficiency as a way to durably reduce gas demand. Think, um, you know, renovating buildings so they're better insulated and take less energy to stay warm or, or cool, replacing gas boilers uh, with heat pumps. But uh, more could be done, I think, by encouraging energy savings, particularly uh, lowering thermostat temperatures by a degree or two in homes and offices until the heating season uh, is over. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you very much, Elisabetta. But as you touched upon, with the US's role regarding liquefied natural gas supplies to Europe and with Germany announcing plans for two LNG terminals, does this risk just swapping like for like? And could this just entrench the use of fossil fuels for the foreseeable future? Oh, that's a very good point, because as you said, in the end, uh, liquefied natural gas is, is still natural gas, right? And, and it's still a fossil fuel. So what's changing um, with the push to get rid of natural gas imported from Russia via pipeline and, and substituted with LNG is just um, the shape, essentially, under which we import gas, uh, as the name says it, liquefied. Uh, which reaches Europe by ship, and the countries from which we import it, as I mentioned, um, US, Qatar, Nigeria, and, and Algeria. Um, but so I'd say there are several considerations to make about the role of gas in Europe's energy mix. Uh, the first one is that in the past decade or so, gas has displaced coal in electricity generation, cutting down uh, European carbon emissions. So that's that's been a, a good uh, a good change. And for this reason, gas was expected to be an important energy source also throughout uh, the energy transition. And you may remember, for this reason, it's been quite controversially labeled as a transitional activity in the EU sustainable taxonomy. Now, today, the fact that the EU wants to stop importing as soon as possible gas from its larger supplier does somewhat, I think, redimension the role of gas in the energy transition. Uh, but some LNG is, is still necessary in the short term, at least. Um, so nonetheless, I think what I think is positive um, is that we have seen some, some signals indicating increased, increased awareness of the environmental impact of gas and willingness to tackle them. Um, for instance, again, the joint statement by von der Leyen and, and Biden that I, I mentioned in, in the previous uh, answer explicitly mentions cutting methane leakage and this is important because methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. Uh, there's also mention in the statement that new gas infrastructure should be ready um, for switching to, to green hydrogen. Um, but I think that perhaps uh, the most important factor that would contribute to limiting this entrenchment of fossil fuels and of natural gas specifically, or at least make natural gas more and more unappealing is really the, the economics of it. Um, you know, even if we do get a good price deal with the US on, on um, upcoming LNG supplies, gas prices will remain high in the near future on global markets, and that will put uh, a lot of pressure for Europe uh, to find alternatives and past. Okay, that's really interesting. And for those 
interested in knowing more about the EU's sustainable taxonomy, as you mentioned, Elisabetta, you can listen to episode two or three, I can't remember exactly from memory, um, of the Ask CER, which we discussed last time. Um, and one final question for you. Now, as it stood before the war, the EU's aim was to be carbon neutral by 2050, with a net 55% reduction of emissions by 2030 compared to EU levels from 1990. So how will the EU's decision to wean itself off Russian gas and oil impact these targets? So yeah, as I said, uh, we are already seeing some switching uh, from gas to coal to generate electricity and coal is more carbon intensive than gas. So this trend will increase carbon emissions in the short term and that's uh, bad news. Now, the key, I think, is to advance faster on the European Green Deal, um, for instance, by approving the new policies presented under last summer's climate package, Fit for 55, because yes, um, we know uh, emissions targets are part of EU law now, but what sets the pace for getting there is the policy infrastructure. So there needs to be progress, uh, for example, on the approval of a, a tightening of the cap on emissions um, from power generation and industrial activity under the the EU emissions trading scheme, among other things. Um, and, 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 you know, the reason why this is important, the reason why setting this, this policy pathway, this policy infrastructure is important is to make sure that this bump in emissions from the shift to, to coal power generation is a temporary one and not a, a new normal uh, back to the past uh, type of situation. What I think is reassuring is that EU leaders have been quite unanimous in saying that the European Green Deal and, and you know, the energy transition is the answer to, uh, to, to this um, necessity of, of, for the EU to win itself of uh, import dependency of fossil fuels. So momentum for more renewables and more energy efficiency is there. And uh, I think there are also good chances that we might see it reflected in more ambitious EU targets on, uh, you know, uh, greater um, deployment of renewables and faster um, renovation targets for energy efficiency, for instance. Thanks, Elisabetta. Now, Ian, let's talk about UK-EU relations, which Klaas also asked about. I'm sure Boris Johnson's egregious comment comparing Ukraine's struggle to the 2016 Brexit vote didn't go down at all well in Brussels. But speaking more broadly, what are the relations like between the UK and the EU now, especially with the backdrop of the war? Has the acute threat of Russia improved the relationship or has the conflict highlighted disunity between the two or difficulties in cooperating? Yeah, well, thanks very much, Klaus. That's a very good question. And I'd say that on the whole, the war has indeed has a, had a positive effect on the relationship. Um, I think both sides have realised that uh, they need to work together in the face of um, a bigger problem than arguments over fish or anything else. And um, what we've seen, particularly in the area of sanctions, is that they have been working together quite effectively. That's an area where one could see in the past that, that logically they needed to work together. Um, there's a great sort of complementarity between the kind of sanctions that the EU can impose on trade, for example, and the kind of financial sanctions that, that have a particularly big impact when it comes to the UK and the, the City of London. Um, and since Brexit, that had been something that was quite difficult just to, to get the two sides working together. But uh, this time it's worked much better. So that, that's something. 
And you had um, Liz Truss being the first UK foreign secretary to take part in a foreign affairs council since Brexit. Uh, again, you know, that's that's a sign of, of some common sense dawning. Where I think we still have some problems is that in the background, you've still got the Northern Ireland Protocol problem. And um, you've got very important elections coming up in Northern Ireland. That's a controversial subject in the election campaign. And so not all of the problems have disappeared. But yeah, I think on the whole, uh, the two sides are seeing that um, when faced with a much more significant enemy, they need to work together. Mm -hmm. And with speed at that. Yeah. Now, I will put another question to you, if that's okay. John from Wales asked about the role of the UN if a country, say like Ukraine, has applied for EU membership. He asked, should countries who have asked to join the EU be offered UN protection and be assisted by the EU or the UN with resolving any third party country concerns? Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, that's exactly the way that the UN ought to, to work. And I can foresee that in many cases where countries are involved in conflicts or disputes, um, you know, there might indeed be such a role for the UN, either in uh, helping mediation or even providing a peacekeeping operation or something like that. I mean, the complicating factor when it comes to Ukraine is that Russia is itself a permanent member of the UN Security Council with a veto. And so if the EU were to go to the UN and say, look, uh, you know, here is Ukraine, there's a war going on in its territory, we need a UN peacekeeping operation there, uh, the Russians are just going to put down a flat net and veto uh, any, any such move. So Unfortunately, uh, it would be blocked by the, the Russians as things stand at the moment. Now, what I think is more interesting is, you know, could the EU now do more itself to, um, to help stabilise Ukraine? And we, we now have a new uh, EU fund, the European Peace Facility, which is available, apart, apart from anything else, to... Um, purchase weapons that that Ukraine can use in its own defense. But I certainly wouldn't rule out in the longer term the possibility of some uh, physical EU mission on the ground helping to keep the peace or to monitor a peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine. So, you know, that's definitely a possibility, even if the UN route is blocked by Russia. Okay, thank you very much, Ian. Camino, let's turn to Hungary, where Prime Minister Viktor Orban is seeking re-election on Sunday, April 3rd. He's been an ally of Putin for the last 10 years, but rightly condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Josefina from Porto asked how the war has already impacted and is likely to affect Budapest's relationship with Moscow. Well, Rosie, I, I think I would defer to somebody whose words are wiser than me um, at this very moment, and that's Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. He uh, took part in uh, the European Union summit here in Brussels uh, via video conference, unfortunately, um, and he was doing a tour de table while um, pleading Ukraine's case for EU membership. He was going like thanking countries for their support and asking others uh, to reconsider their positions. Um, when he got to Orban, as uh, as you said, 
a very good ally of Putin, though. Zelensky paused and said, Hungary. I want to stop here and be honest once and for all. You should decide for yourself who you are for. And I think these words are amazing because this encapsulates the problem that Orban is in at the moment. He is in a real pickle. For the past seven years, he's ramped up his anti-EU rhetoric back home, and this has paid off beautifully for him. In the meantime, he's uh, dismantled civil society organization, clamped down on press freedom, dismantled the asylum system, whatever uh, you, you, wanna, you wanna have in terms of a liberal democracy. And he does survive uh, partially thanks to a network of very good paid cronies who often receive some money uh, earmarked for EU projects. So all was going relatively well for Victor until two rather brutal shocks put him and his illiberal ways on the spotlights. So the first one is the pandemic and the second one is Putin's war. I think both of them have been rather inconvenient for Orban, um, although not to the same extent. So to deal with the pandemic, the European Union put together a formidable joint funds which released to members was and is conditional on them meeting a number of standards and uh, just a scope obviously being corrupt is not one of them. So the European Union is withholding money from Budapest and asking for guarantees and no matter uh, what any spokesperson is saying on Twitter, by the way, do not believe that the commission has still not released funds to Hungary. Mm-hmm. That has hurt Orban back home, but not all that much. I think the war is a different story altogether, though. How so? What do you mean? So, so one might think that Hungary, sharing as it does a border with Ukraine, would be at the forefront of those me- member states seeking a stronger response to Putin and would try to keep you know, momentum going, uh, to try and end the aggression. And obviously, this cannot happen without European and Western unity. Take Poland, for example. Um, Obviously, Poland is also in the middle of a serious role with the European Union over the rule of law and the independence of its judiciary. Uh, But it has been one of the most vocal member states in opposing Putin's war. Both Hungary and Poland are actually amongst the top five EU countries hosting Ukrainian refugees. And yet, unlike Poland's uh, Prime Minister Morawiecki, Orban has been erratic. After, after his initial support to EU sanctions and, and weapons delivery, he started making some really bizarre statements about Hungary not being able to allow for weapons to transit through its territory and actually threatening to veto sanctions. This has obviously irritated Orban's fellow leaders, some of whom, by the way, are much better shielded from the direct impact of the war and have, however, understood that this is not the time to be disruptive or to play enfant terrible. I actually believe the war has completely upset Orban's electoral strategy and that he is a bit lost and hence he's trying to play it both ways. And I am actually unsure that it's going to serve him very well, but I guess We'll know the answer next Sunday, since we have a Hungarian election uh, to look forward to. 
so I think that's everything for now. Thank you very much to our listeners for writing in with those, those interesting questions. Thank you to Elisabetta, Kamina and Ian for joining me. And we at the CER will be back in six weeks time to answer another lot of questions. Um, thank you for listening and goodbye. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.